Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the December 11th edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist, an author, the host of the Capital Record podcast, and the founder of the eponymous investment firm, The Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. Greetings say- from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, tell us about the uh, schedule. What you're out there for Acton, I presume? Uh, actually, no. Although I was with Acton today, I had a meeting there with uh, their president. I uh, recorded a speech there that will be part of an uh, annual um, symposium they do in February. Um, that's virtual, and so my speech was recorded in their studio today at their beautiful offices in downtown Grand Rapids. But then tomorrow, which is Tuesday, so probably by the time people are listening to this, it will be today. Get see what I did there. I did. Um, I time traveling. In, I'm speaking in Lansing, Michigan, uh, and then I'm speaking in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and then I'm going back to New York City. Wow, that's a uh, quite a schedule. Um, can I ask the Acton Institute speech? What was that about? Well, it was about um, my forthcoming book, Full-Time, mm. Work and the Meaning of Life. And they have uh, an annual event that they're doing in February um, for business people that m- making a case for entrepreneurship, uh, for business. They have multiple speakers. It's sort of like a day-long symposium. Last year, you may recall, I debated a professor from Harvard on work from home. And um, this year, I, I gave a, a speech in an interview format that we recorded today, just making the case for a resurgent and robust theology of work. I love this, and I loved the tease on Twitter. Uh, I think it came out this morning. I'm sorry, on X. Uh, somebody had tweeted out something about how, gosh, if we just had more leisure time, here's my article in, I don't know, Harper's The Atlantic or something. You know what I'm talking about? MSNBC, I'm the one who put it up. Yes, I know you did. Proceed. MSNBC so- wrote a story saying that we were in spiritual decline, but it was written by two sitting U.S. senators. So this is, it was published at MSNBC, but it was written by some serious Democratic legislators that have perfectly diagnosed what we need to have a resurgence of spirituality in the United States Mm. of America. And their prescription? More leisure. (laughs) I guess we've done so well with what we've got now. With, With 320 million hours a year being devoted to playing Fortnite, Mm. And with the uh, Kardashian show still, I think, the number one show in all streaming, we need more leisure. Mm. So, look, apart from cheap shot anecdotals, it's a preposterous thesis, not only in terms of real sociological data, um, but theologically, it, it obviously is untrue. So, yeah, I tried to tease it up a bit there on Twitter. You don't have to call it X around me. You can call it Twitter. Thank you. Hey, do me a favor, just if you could quickly indulge me. Take the, you know, some of the some of the most difficult jobs out there you could imagine and respond to somebody whose likely response is, well, David and Will, that's nice to be you guys. Will, you work in a think tank. David, you know, I don't even know what you do. You write books and you're an economist and you have posh digs and you talk about your fine dinners. But we're talking about the real working people and their lives are horrible because of work. 
Talk to us about the virtue of work on, say, an assembly line or a meatpacking plant. Well, first of all, I have um, an entire book coming out about the very subject. Oh, well, all, what is the book called? As far as people who don't know what I do and summed it up the way that you, who actually know me, just did, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would like to say that there's a chance there might be a cause and effect between what I do for a living and how I have those posh meals and houses you talk about. Just maybe those two things are connected. But, you know, the writing and the speaking and the books are actually the extra credit, you know, mm. to run this $5 billion business. I actually mm -hmm. have to wake up and work all day, every day, including most of the time while we're in the middle of doing our podcast. I have seen this. I can yeah. attest. Um, Will, the, uh, the question is very legit. It's something I really desperately want to avoid. Um, is people believing that the uh, a message about faith and work, a message about the dignity of work, that it is only a message for a white-collar audience. It's not my view. Um, I believe that within white-collar jobs, there are moments of drudgery. I believe in blue-collar jobs there are moments of drudgery. I think there are people who love their blue-collar work. I think there are people who love their white-collar work. I think that we talk about an electrician or a plumber having an unfortunate job, not because the electrician or plumber thinks it. It's, and, and, and the reason we think that you're going to get more girls at the bar Friday night saying you're an eye banker at Goldman Sachs than saying you're a plumber, I, I don't think those sociological issues, all of which I think are woefully unacceptable, I think it's because we have not taught my views on work because we have lost a view of the robustness and dignity of vocational calling that we've created an internal elitism and a materialism around it when in reality there's no question that there's people who make 10 times x who are miserable at in, in their vocation and people who make x who are perfectly fulfilled and satisfied and so this isn't about the money one makes, and it isn't about the sociological um, accoutrements of the uh, impression one has around a, a line of work. It comes down to whether or not we believe that work is a blessing or a curse. And I, and I think it comes down to uh, what we do to optimize opportunities in work. There are people who work jobs they're miserable in, and I would like to, as Arthur Brooks has done wonderful work in, point out that the earned success is the uh, moment at which somebody achieves that kind of joy and fulfillment mm -hmm. uh, and flourishing, human flourishing. Uh, if there is no adversity along the way, um, if you find a Broadway actress who has made it and is absolutely at the top of the mountain loving the utter joy that being a performer on Broadway comes with for someone who dreamed of that moment their whole life, and they didn't go through the misery of waiting tables in New York City on their way to getting there, I don't think that person has achieved the uh, joy that they were after. The whole point of the destination is the journey. And this is something that I try to unpack in my book not only on a personal and human level, but um, theologically as well as part of God's intent for our lives. Well, I was uh, brought up 
um, by two parents who believed, A, though they were Catholic, in the Puritan notion that idle hands are the devil's workshop, so stay busy. And uh, and the other thing was service, that every job, you know, my parents would remind me all the time, every job is dignified to the extent that it adds value to someone else's life and your own. And um, I can remember serving ice cream endlessly during a summer at a uh, a uh, pharmacy, like I think it was thrifty. It was called back in the day, and um, thirty nine cents. Yeah, well, for me, I think at that time it was like twenty five. David, this is the olden times. Maybe even a nickel when I was a little kid. But in any case, you know, it was the it was the joy of actually being able to serve people. Uh, not every customer was delightful. Not every customer appreciated my uh, my work, but um, but I did. There was something joyful about it. And that was one of the, I guess you could argue, one of the least dignified in some respects job jobs I've ever held, but I truly enjoyed it. Um, speaking of joy, I want to talk about a guy named Thomas Starr King, who brings joy to my life. This is our history segment. I'll make it super fast. Uh, this is a, um, a universalist uh, minister born in 1824 in New York takes his first pulpit in Massachusetts. Don't remember where, uh, when he was about 20. So, um, 1840s and then decides after he's married and has a few kids he's moving to california and he arrives here just months before the civil war really kicks off so he gets here in about 1860 the war kicks off uh, with enthusiasm shortly thereafter and um it, most people don't remember this guy thomas star king but uh, katie dowd a reporter at sf gate writes in 2020 that his name graces six california schools he's honored with a street in san francisco a peak in yosemite is named after him but most californians would be hard-pressed to tell you who thomas star king was even though he is credited by some as the man who saved california during the civil war he was so powerful in terms of his reputation and his effect on people that years later in 1931 when it came time to send two statues to the U.S. Capitol to represent what California is. One was Father Junipero Serra. The other one was Thomas Starr King. So he arrives in 1860, as I say, by then California is 10 years old. It's a free state, despite the wishes of a lot of Southern pro-slavers who would love to have seen the place captured for the uh, for the slave South. But the, the greater risk it comes from people who just really want to secede to separate themselves off from the Union. Californians who believe that this Civil War thing, the trauma of slavery, the, the distant federal government, whether it was under Lincoln or anybody else, was just really problematic for people who were very entrepreneurial, had come from all over the globe and weren't really interested in trying to breach that um, or or to broach, I guess would be the right word, the 3,000 mile distance from Sacramento to Washington, D.C. So separatism, if you will, or or something like it was was in the air when Thomas Starr King arrives here. And he's terrified because he knows that if California pulls out of the Union, that could really imperil uh, the entire Union cause. Some some listeners may remember my my frequent forays into California history during the Civil War period, and California raised more soldiers as a proportion of its population than anybody else, any other state in the Union. We uh, California volunteers were responsible for holding off the South's incursion into the Southwest in New Mexico and Arizona. It was a phenomenal place. I mean, this was a very anti-slave place. But the concern among you know for king was that the the separation would rob the the north rob the union cause of of this tremendous resource and also just the almost limitless gold 
So Dow, the SF gate writer, recalls that he joins that he was part of the Lyceum movement. And if you don't remember the Lyceum movement, David, that was a big movement in the 19th century in the days before the dawn of Netflix and streaming services and podcasts. This is how a lot of people got their information and their entertainment. Thousands of people would show up to hear these major speakers, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Frederick Douglass, and Thomas Starr King. He was among the considered among these greats. My friend Jack Cheever was writing in the LA Times about him in 2009, and he says, King was deeply agitated by talk of California being bisected or seceding from the Union. He embarked on a statewide speaking tour preaching against disunion with a voice that was, in the words of one observer, held within it, I'm sorry, all the sweetness of the harp when struck by a master hand, all the power and solemn grandeur of a great cathedral organ. The 140-pound minister wasn't always well-received. He encountered some hostile crowds and death threats, Cheever writes. Uh, His speech, he recalled years later, was when something like this, I would pledge California to the Northern Republic and to the flag that should have no treacherous threads of cotton in its warp, and the audience would come down in thunder, King remembers. At the close of it, it was announced that I would repeat the very speech the next night, and they gave me three rounds of cheers. He raised one and a half million bucks in contemporary dollars to support union aid. Uh, That was about 20% of all cash raised nationally. By 1864, however, hoarse with exhaustion, he returned home to his family in San Francisco and died of pneumonia. On March 4th, 1864, he was just 39 years old. At his funeral, Henry Ward Beecher called him the man who saved California. Uh, Here's how Beecher described him. When this war broke out with a tongue of fire and with nimble foot inspired by the truest spirit of patriotism, he labored up and down through California. And we owe more to him, more than to all other men that California is loyal today. Uh, Well, maybe not. Uh, Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Anyway, he was mounted there in the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol in 1931, alongside Father Sarah, as I say, and was removed in 2009 to make room for, wait for it, David. Ronald Reagan. So um, that's who's up there now. Not Thomas Starr King in the Capitol, but Ronald Reagan and Father Sarah. You know, no no quibbles with that. I think Reagan was great and still uh, a kind of a lighthouse for us. But that's our Thomas Starr King, who was born this week uh, in 1824 in New York, but died in California. Well researched and well presented, my friend. Thank you, buddy. Hey, um, Quick question for you. Can we just talk real quickly about uh, the Israeli war and sort of the echoes here in California? I want to point out that uh, here's the headline from Fresno land. Uh, The headline is, this is a place for everyone. That's in quotes. Hundreds gather to raise Palestinian flag in downtown Fresno. Uh, The story uh, notes that it was a direct response, this uh, flag raising last week in Fresno of all places. I'm sorry, this is actually over the weekend. Um, on December 8th. There we go. Uh, The flag raising was a direct response to the October 12th flag raising of the Israeli flag in the very same park, David. Um, Here's what's really fascinating to me. I don't think any other national flag should be raised over state capitals or city capital or city halls in in America. Uh, I find this a radical misdirection at a time when these people ought to be staying in their lanes and balancing budgets and filling potholes and educating children. I know that's not sexy, but that is, after all, their job, not as civil servants to create dissension and raise national flags. 
however much we may love them. Uh, the, the story notes that the mayor, um, uh, Fresno's mayor, is Jerry Dyer, who's quite a conservative, I think a former, I want to say, uh, county sheriff or something like that, but a real conservative guy who kicked all this off with uh, an Israeli flag uh, ceremony on October 12th. Now, let's all remember the sort of the context there. October 7th is, of course, the Hamas attack. Five days later, we, we you know, we see the flag, the Israeli flag going up in the city park and uh, the mayor's there. So we get this other one. Uh, the, you know, this this call and response now. And this is the problem that we don't have people who are elected to office and stay in their lanes, however well intentioned, however much they want to use their university or their elementary school or their city hall as a promontory to speak to global issues. It's not their job. And I'm not sure it's helpful, but I'm open to being wrong about this, David. What do you think? Raising flags over uh, government property. Well, I think you you know what I probably think, and and it's uh, interesting that a lot of people listen to the podcast and say this isn't a California story, but that would be news to the people in downtown Fresno, you know, looking looking to do it. And so, um, this notion that we're going to have flags get raised, and then there's going to be this response, and it's happening right here in California, and it wouldn't be a California story. I disagree with, and um, I I I am a little stunned. Um, not, I'm not stunned at some of the response post October 7th from the Ivy league, you know, their, their moral, um, ambiguity and, and surrender to the confusion of wokeism is been no surprise to me. And the fact that there are in large population centers, like, like some of the nation's big cities, um, a certain constituency, of of people who have bought into some of the radicalized notion of um Hamas is the good guy and Israel is the bad guy it doesn't surprise me it distresses me in a lot of cases it disgusts me but it doesn't surprise me but in in the fact that it, it like a town like Fresno I'm surprised um, and it's happened in a lot of other places around the country it's uh seems to be with a younger demographic Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the whole, the whole thing, I just think we're, we're living in a time of the fruits of this moral relativistic tree continue to come off. And I don't think they taste very good. Well, let me ask you this because again, the, one of the, um, one of the hosts of the event was a city council member. Now, my understanding of Fresno from folks who live up there, listeners and others is that despite its location and a very conservative part of the state, you know, the Central Valley, I don't have to say this, except perhaps to people who don't live here is very, very conservative, typically. And Fresno's the you might call it the the seat, the center, I think it is, in fact, California's geographical center. And it is, but it is probably part of the reddest part of the state. But the, the mayor is a conservative, I think there's one conservative member of the council out of seven that is six liberals and or even progressives and they're the ones really you know supporting this one of them says um this is let's see council member miguel arias who helped organize the event spoke in support of the palestinian community he writes uh, or said this year alone our city has raised the flag of armenia mexico juneteenth the lgbtq community ukraine israel and now the palestinian flag we raise these flags as a symbol that the city of fresno loves all of us this is a place for everyone 
Well, I think they would better show that by not raising the flags of other of other nations um, or other causes. And, you know, it kind of hurts me to say this, but I think that even extends to my friends who are really adamant that the POW flag ought to be raised. I really think that this is a an American and a California flag issue. It's we don't put up others. We have no opinion on outside issues. We are supposed to be sticking to our lane. Now, as individuals, of course, we can say whatever the hell we want. But I think as civil servants, these people ought to be uh, more mindful of the path that they're supposed to be on. So so your point would be not the distress of people hanging Palestinian flags, but that they would hang any flags at all. In order to look, first of all, the flying the Palestinian flag right now is just morally confused at best. Um, it really, I think, is problematic. I think our listeners know where you and I stand on this issue. I am in full-throated support of uh, of Israel and its uh, its ability, its responsibility to protect its people from attacks like the one that happened on October 7th. Having yes, said that, it's not the place of local governments to get involved in that debate, even when they're on my side. That's yeah. not their job. I get that it's more exciting. It's more exhilarating to think of yourself as a global player. But the fact is, we hired you to fill potholes or to educate our children or to make sure that the water arrives and it's clean and doesn't kill people. But our state doesn't do the basics. We do the theatrical. Our governor trots off to China to meet with Xi Jinping and to talk about climate change that China has no interest in whatever. Um, we produce the kinds of people that, uh, uh, you know, we, we produce Kamala Harris. We, we produce two U.S. senators and we'll come to their role in a moment. Two people who have no business being in one of the most formerly estimable bodies in the in the republic and in, in the country. So I'm just deeply troubled when governments don't do the the minimum that they're supposed to do and decide they're going to go for this maximalist approach, you know, calling themselves city states or, you know, nation states as Gavin Newsom likes to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I got to think about this issue about, and you're referring to state to, to state land or, or, or any municipal land having a flag outside of California. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this is just sort of a hot take. I just saw this and I thought this is the problem. I, you know, flying the pride flag is something that I'm not for. Yeah. I uh, mean, in a way, in a way, this thing is kind of a funny reversal because, because like what happened is they flew the Israeli flag first and then, and then, so now these little, um, these Palestinian smart asses decide that they want to do it next as a matter of revenge. And your point is, well, if we don't do it at all, we don't have to deal with it. But um, that, the, the, Folks, you're kind of wanting to take this from a um, let's maintain some neutrality and and sphere sovereignty. Um, they're not going to stop the LGBT flag. So then the question is, are the are the folks represented by this municipality supposed to accept the rules of engagement, which are. That, you know, probably going to allow for some Hamas flags in the future are going to right now allowing for the rainbow flag and other different things. Um, there will be a BLM flag There probably already was and we just didn't cover it. And then and then anything that might be perceived as being a cause for like the military or for Israel or for something else will become controversial. I I don't mind your view of just no flags at all. Let's figure it out. But we're not really debating between no flags and all the flags. We're just debating between them getting a bunch of flags and the other people not. 
So I think I think your view certainly is a really good step forward towards simplification. But I, uh, I I don't see it coming anytime soon. And I think what 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 really will happen um, out of this moment, I'm not as worried about. Uh, even though I don't really disagree with you, I'd like to think a little bit more about what I think of the propriety of a municipal flag waving um, in the reality <laughs> of what we're dealing with here. This actually is about anti-Semitism. I mean, that's oh, why, yeah. that's why they want to do it because they yeah no they, they I, hate I'm, yeah, I'm completely with you, and I think you and I have yeah. established our yeah. bona fides on that one. Totally, yeah, totally. My, my again, my sense is really just about effective municipal government does not rely. And this is a 180 degree turn from my youth. I've described this before, but when I was, you know, in my 20s, I worked for an organization that had a quarterly journal called the Bulletin of Municipal Foreign Policy. We were all about that. What um, did you think when they took down the Confederate flags in the South? Oh, I, I, I don't think the Confederate flag should have been allowed to fly anywhere in the U.S. They they were traitors. Uh, it represents the flag of secession and slavery. Done. Over. You don't rebel against the United States government and then get to fly your flag after you lose. Now, if they'd won, we'd all be living under the Confederate flag. It'd be a very different world, and there's a movie about that. But Actually, I don't think we would be because I'm not sure that that society was ready for self-government. Um that would have lasted to the year 2023. Yeah. But re regardless, um, <laughs> I, I think that your solution here would go a long way towards simplifying some of these public debates. But you know what else would is us just having it out on the merits of the underlying cases, right? Um, should should there be flags talking about people's sexual orientation? Because what you said was get the government out of the bedroom. Then you want to put flags up, having the government wave a flag for what you're doing in the bedroom. So I'm having a hard time keeping up. Um, the Confederate thing seemed much less controversial to me for the number of the reasons you cited. Um, I don't believe that everyone who had a Confederate flag was doing it because they were celebrating slavery. And I don't think you said that, but I also don't believe that there was any possible plausible argument for, for maintaining it um, year years later. And so look, these things are kind of silly at the end of the day, right? They're just, they're symbols of a substantive issue of various substantive debates in society, whether it be about LGBT or whether it be about the South and Confederacy, whether it be about Ukraine, um, all the flag waving stuff does is bring out the revolutionaries. It brings out the radicals. It brings out, you know, the, the people that are going to scream, but we're not getting anywhere about actually having the real substantive public debate. That's probably what I'm most distressed about. Yeah. And I think part of that debate is that we are one nation under God, indivisible, and the division into national ethnic groups and sexual identities as represented by flags is part of the problem. So it's not merely symbolic. It is substantive when flags are raised that are not the American flag, not not the California flag, but flags that allow our government officials to distract, to divide us, to provoke conflict. Even when they talk about words like love uh, in defense of raising the Palestinian flag and say, you know, to my Jewish friends and that sort of thing. This is that equivocation that I cannot stand. When we talked last week about University of California um, President Michael Drake saying, 
we have to, you know, basically uh, have a value neutral viewpoint. No talk, uh, you know, that is anti-Semitic. Oh, and by the way, no Islamophobia. Um, This is a this is a play toward that kind of moral equivalence. And it's just not right. Um, And again, I think it also is just a convenient way for politicians to spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours organizing events like this when it's not their place as representatives of our local governments. It's just not their job. Um, I don't need to hear from a 20 or 30 something year old council member in Fresno about, as he put it, the occupation of Palestine. I just don't need to hear that. I need to understand why his city's finances are in the red, why it's one of the most polluted areas, why its water is so wretched. I could go on with the problems of the Central Valley under these progressives. Um, you know, there, there, there are, <laughs> what is it? Don't worry for the morrow. We have plenty. We have problems of plenty today. The Lord said something like that somewhere. You'll know. I'm not uh, good at my, my scripture. But um, let, let's move on to somebody who handled this problem, I think, far better than I have. Um, David, I don't know if you saw the the video that went crazy uh, in the last few days. It was about an Oakland uh, coffee house where some employees were caught on video refusing to allow a patron access to the bathroom. The patron was insistent she was going to use the bathroom. Why? Because she knew that inside the bathroom, someone had scrawled anti-Semitic uh, pro pro Hamas and anti Jewish. I mean, just really anti Jewish stuff, anti Israel stuff. I mean, the mix all over the bathrooms, on the mirrors, the sinks, and they kept refusing to allow her in. And she caught their refusals. When they finally allow her to look in there, and she captures a video for a few seconds, they then boot her out, and then do so. You know, kind of kick her in the keister on the way out the door with claims of uh, free Palestine and that sort of thing. Now the here's here's the follow up. Uh, I'm reading from um, let's see, this is CBS News up in Sacramento, or sorry, San Francisco. Uh, three Oakland cafe workers are no longer on the job following a confrontation this past week with a customer over anti-Semitic graffiti found in the coffee shop's bathroom. According to a statement released by the shop owners, the incident occurred when a female customer noticed the graffiti in the bathroom and tried to take a picture of it. The woman recorded employees of Farley's East coffee shop blocking her access while making anti-Israel comments. In the video, one employee is heard telling the woman, this is private property, before asking her to leave. I just want to go to the restroom, the woman says. Another employee says, I know Israel loves taking private property and saying it's their own. So the woman responds, you're not going to let me into the restroom. Um, so those two, uh, those three people are no longer working in the uh, in the coffee shop. And the cafe posted a statement in the window. Well, wait, where do you see that? Where do you see that they're no longer working there? Oh, that's the first line of the story. Um, three Oakland cafe workers no longer on the job. Um they were fired. Uh, where, let's see. Where it, it says the first line says that they apologized for the incident and how staffers uh, tried to record it. Sorry, and the first then, the first is three Oakland cafe workers no longer following a confrontation. Um, they are fired. And I could go on about the firing, but the bottom line is they've been fired. And then the employee said, "No, no, no." Because, the because I, I must be. You must have sent me a different link. Oh, I'm sorry, man. Be, because it says. Farley's East acknowledged what happened and released a statement saying, we apologize for the error and the distress caused to the customers. We've taken corrective measures with our staff and removed the graffiti. We're not anti-Semitic. We value diversity and inclusivity, and we're committed to ongoing staff training. 
but I yeah, don't see three. anywhere in this article that they were fired. Okay. Uh, very last line of the story that I'm looking at. Three of the workers involved in the confrontation were fired. An additional three employees quit following the incident, the statement said. Um, so the statement says, nothing we say can adequately capture the pain and terror that Hamas inflicted on innocent civilians, nor the horrific suffering and loss of innocent Palestinian lives in Gaza since. There's your equivalence. These difficult times should bring us together, and this starts with us creating a safe space for anyone who patronizes our coffee house. Um, there's a kind of neutrality there that I can appreciate. You're, you're still not seeing it, huh? Well, it's not there. It, it, you're looking at a different article. Sorry about that, man. Um, the other one is at the cafe. There's a second story here also from CBS Bay Area. Oakland cafe workers say their owner knew about the anti-Semitic graffiti and left it in there. So I don't know where to go with that part of it uh, because there's no evidence to say that's true. The employers sure seem to have viewpoints that differ strongly from those three workers who uh, they fired. Mm. Um, well, well, sorry, sorry about my mix up on the run list there. No, don't worry about that. I, I mean, so it's pretty heinous, pretty disgusting. I, I, I guess I don't know how to respond because the article I'm reading, I was more pissed at the owners of the business than the people who did it. You know, anytime someone does something like that and the response is we're going to do more training, um, and we value inclusivity, uh, that's not, that's not scratching the itch there, you know? I don't I don't think you do. I don't I don't think this is an HR matter. You got some real bad people working for you. Well, so let me just assure you that from the stories I've been reading on this, and I'm so sorry I sent you the wrong one, three employees fired, three others quit because in solidarity with those the first three. And um and I think that's the appropriate way to handle this. The people who behave badly to your clients and uh, allow bad stuff to go on like that, uh, I don't want them working for me. But that's yeah, uh, that's me. And by the way, if um I own a coffee shop and one of my employees goes in the bathroom and writes anything on the mirror with anything like the, like a blank line, just a, just a line. Then they're fired. <laughs> See, this is the no other flags rule just brought to the company bathroom. Don't vandalize. I think you're saying that. I, look, I know I sound like a real fuddy duddy here. <laughs> I, I, I sound I sound like I'm way out of touch with the way the kids are these days. But yeah, I would say that vandalism of your employer's property would be a bad thing. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people, do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, Come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Hey, let's turn to a subject that I think you will have much more to say. Uh, your team, the Anaheim Angels of Los Angeles, or is it the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? There we go. Uh, have lost Shohei Otani, the great, perhaps the greatest player in all of baseball history. 
who just signed the richest deal with a club up the uh, I-5, the Los Angeles Dodgers, for $700 million over 10 years. Um, there were all kinds of um, uh, uh, calls for, you know, that this was outrageous, $700 million, uh, and that the you know Dodgers overpaid. This is terrible. This is excessive and grotesque. If you read through the comments, it becomes sort of a conflict between those who really believe in the free market and those who believe there ought to be all kinds of regulations around how much money one person can make. My favorite comments came from those who pointed out that much of Shohei Otani's income, $700 million playing for the Dodgers over the next 10 years, more than 50% of it will actually go to government. Um, here, one guy broke it down as uh, $26 million in, annually to the feds, uh, about $4.5 million to California. There's an agent fee in there, something called the jock tax, and I believe that's when you get taxed on your income for the days you play in other jurisdictions. Uh, your FICA, your Medicare, because, of course, uh, Shohei Otani needs FICA and Medicare. But in any case, he's... He's left with just about half of that $700 million, the rest of it going primarily to uh, to government. But David, what did you make of the uh, the biggest deal in baseball and among the biggest in American sports? Well, well, first of all, Will, I don't think you can call this guy the greatest baseball player of all time. I mean, I think you got to play a little more than he's played. He's unbelievably impressive, and certainly the nature of his combined skill as a pitcher and a hitter uh, it's not something we've really seen before. And, you know, unlike those really, really good players back in the day, like Babe Ruth and, and Ted Williams, you know, uh, uh, he was actually playing with black people on the field. So there's that. Shohei um, is, yeah. But I don't, um, I don't have any opinion in the world. Uh, th this notion that someone would say, well, it's an outrageous amount of money. There's tons of deals that prove to be bad sports deals. And and the Angels made so many of them I couldn't count, where you're left with contracts of players that were like 44 years old and couldn't throw a ball, you know, to, across their living room to their kid, and yet we were still paying them like 12, 15 million a year. Um, it happens all the time. Otani's not like that. He's still got the prime of his career ahead, theoretically. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned or not. He's not even going to be able to play this next year. I mean, they're not going to even get him. Well, you know, he can bat, can't he? He can bat, but can't pitch, right? That's right, because he's got an elbow injury or something. To your Tommy point John. about who knows. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that he'll pitch ever again. So um, either way, there's only two people that I think should really have a strong opinion on it as a matter of like business transaction, mm -hmm. and that's the buyer and the seller. But that's a permanent mm -hmm. belief of mine in free society the buyers and sellers should set prices as a sports fan i'm not a dodger fan at all so i couldn't care less about them overspending i kind of think it's funny as best i can tell they've been overspending for 10 years and don't have anything to show for it now some might call that little asterisk of a season with during covid when when they were playing with their friends in the backyard and they called it a world series with with, with a, a 12 game season or something like that but, I mean, basically, the highest payroll in baseball, they lose every single year in the first round. They've gone to the series a number of times and lost. They've gone to the uh, the uh, National League uh, uh, Championship Series and lost a bunch. So this is a big underachieving club that now has paid $700 million for someone else I fully expect to come in and do really well as they lose again in the first round. 
Um, <laughs> but the Yankees have done it. The Angels have done it. Mm-hmm. I just think it, it's irrelevant. But this notion of people saying, like, I think it's outrageous amount of money. Well, of course it's outrageous. But where do you think the money comes from? Yes. It comes from the people that are willing to pay it. And you say, well, that's the ball club. No, it isn't. The ball club only gets the, ma- the money from the fans. The fans buy the tickets. The fans buy the beer. The fans uh, watch the TV and do the streaming and do and and the cable and so forth. All of these things come from market appetite in the end, period. Economics 101, case closed. And you know who's overpaid? Hollywood actors and actresses, except for I don't really think that. I think that they still get what the market is willing to pay them. But if someone said, what bothers you more, a pitcher and batter getting this contract or Alec Baldwin getting you know twenty million for a movie, it wouldn't be the pitcher. <laughs> well, he's got the metrics. Uh, Shohei Otani does to uh, back up the salary. But as you say, yeah, you know, I, I think you know the most interesting claim I heard or read rather was very rare. It was I only read it in one place in the Orange County Register, and that was from somebody who said from the left they were saying this is outrageous. We have supported this team with tax dollars, and therefore should have a share of his income. You know, from the sale to the Dodgers, uh, the contract to the Dodgers. Who um, said that? Uh, just a just a commentator, you know, just somebody just commenting, just a reader. And, but my point is that that is the camel's nose under the tent quite frequently, right? That if government does anything at all for you, remember Obama saying famously, you didn't build that. You didn't build the roads. You didn't build the infrastructure. You didn't educate the kids. The government did that. And so we really are responsible for your success. So there's a point there in which people are saying like, look, we supported the stadium that Otani played in and therefore we deserve a cut. It's that thing where bad government officials try to to leverage government's role, however marginal, to something. Go ahead. You're you can barely uh, contain yourself. No, I, I. I mean, the thing is, no one really like no one of consequence actually said it. There's people think it because of class warfare, but also like they're saying he should pay taxes. Well, I think he is. Yes. I'll tell you what, whoever thinks that, here's what we're going to do. In 10 years, I want to get together and look at what you pay in taxes and what he paid in taxes. <laughs> I can go okay? over those numbers again. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, then estimated we'll, and then we'll decide. We'll yeah. go from there. Next year, he will pay more in taxes than I will make in my whole life. Um, that's pretty incredible. Um, hey, David, let's talk about the other big news story, not Shohei Otani. Kevin McCarthy, who, uh, of course, as we went to air last week, I believe. Was that when this happened, David? Uh, when he resigns? It's December 6th. Yeah, I think we that's were right. It happened actually just starting. The studio. That was a yeah. breaking moment. I felt like a real newscaster there. Yeah, and you looked I like, felt like, like you must have felt for years like a journalist with a hot, you know, hot tip. I, I mean, the buzz. It was real. Yeah. Actually, I got distracted almost immediately. But either way, it was cool for a moment. <laughs> Okay, so so Kevin McCarthy announces his resignation in the Wall Street Journal in an op-ed, a commentary piece, December 6th. And it really, David, I I only read it for the first time yesterday when I kind of caught up to all my missing reading over the week. So I went back to this first piece and it reads like a resume. It's a a really odd commentary in which he kind of describes all the great things he accomplished. And he only gets to his real point, which is, hey, I'm resigning. About halfway through, he writes... It is in this spirit that I have decided to depart the House at the end of this year 
to serve America in new ways. I know my work is only getting started. What is that work? Maybe it's like a Chamber of Commerce organization. He writes, I started my career as a small business owner, and I look forward to helping entrepreneurs and risk takers reach their full potential. Or maybe he wants to run the uh, the GOP. I will continue to recruit our country's best and brightest to run for elected office. The Republican Party is expanding every day, and I am committed to lending my experience to support the next generation of leaders. Um, the most interesting thing, David, is that he immediately tells um, Bob Costa, I think it is, of CBS, I believe that's Robert Costa, sorry, uh, that he will in, that he has endorsed Donald Trump uh, and says he would serve in Trump's cabinet if he is the best person for that cabinet job. Um, so that here's the the big interview uh, with Costa. He says uh, Costa asks him, "Can Trump count on your support?" And McCarthy says, "Yes." He presses him further. Is that an endorsement? McCarthy says, "I will support President Trump," which sure sounds like an endorsement. Asked whether he'd be willing to serve in the cabinet. McCarthy says, in the right position. Look, if I'm the best person for the job, yes. I worked with President Trump on a lot of policies. We worked together to win the majority, but we also have a relationship where we're very honest with one another, he said. Um, so also in that same interview, uh, Costa says, you praise Trump's policies. You say he's a good guy, but many Americans, they look at his language, they listen to his speeches, they hear an authoritarian. Some say even a fascist on the horizon. What do you say to those people who have real concerns? And McCarthy replies, I don't see that. And this is what I tell President Trump, too. What President Trump needs to do in this campaign, it needs to be about rebuilding, restoring, and renewing America. Nice alliteration. It cannot be about revenge. Um Costa points out that Trump talks about retribution every day, day in and day out. And McCarthy replies, yeah, well, he needs to stop that. He needs to stop that now. Costa says, uh, do you really think Trump will take on that kind of advice? Uh, and he says, uh, sure, he'll adapt when he gets all the facts. So, David, this is the problem I have with and have had with Kevin McCarthy, that he's just always on both sides or all sides of this issue. Uh, you know, he's for Trump when it's convenient, against him when it's not. Um, I, I do want to talk about all the other excitement around the Kevin McCarthy nomination here in just a second. But, David, first off, just am I just being hypersensitive about this or what's your take <laughs> well, on Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump? And Oh, it's the whole thing's hideous. I think I mean, there's nothing extra here to be upset about, in my opinion. It, it's the whole thing is we're upsetting um, the, those in the Republican Party unable to just see what's going on um, to maintain a certain level of standards. I do think McCarthy's been particularly transactional, got whipped back and forth around the tea leaves. But not being able to read the tea leaves is hardly unique to Kevin McCarthy. A lot of people have been unable to read them. Um, it's a lot easier for some people that don't feel that they have to formulate their opinions in life on the tea leaves that are willing to call balls and strikes, to believe in certain things around right or wrong. I get that there's political sensitivities. I don't want to pretend like there's no pragmatics, but he's an entirely pragmatic actor, very transactional. Um, he, 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 he would have been a good speaker in terms of the fundraising and some of the politics of required for the job. Um, I mean, he was a good speaker in that, that capacity for nine or 10 months. But if he'd done it for a couple more years, I think he put a, would have held the line okay. But as far as him having no integrity whatsoever, I'm not even a tiny bit surprised. And I think that that's one of the rules right now. If you want to be a leader in Republicanism, you have to kiss the ring. 
You have to say things that aren't true. You have to act as if something is normal that isn't normal. You have to beclown yourself. You have to surrender your dignity. You have to let someone call your wife ugly and say your dad killed JFK and then go kiss their ass for seven years. <laughs> That's what you have to do. I say, no, thank you. But mm -hmm. I, I've never run for office. I'm never running for office. So it's easy for me to say. I'm sure Kevin's in an unenviable position. But I don't know. To me, the freedom of saying I'm leaving office would partially be the freedom to be able to start telling the truth. And uh, I, apparently he's got other aspirations. So I yeah. don't have any, I, I don't know what else to say. The, I, I'm not as disappointed in him as I am in others, though. I will say that. Do you care to uh, elaborate on that point or shall I move on? Well, some the of others. them, I mean, I'm saying there's like actual people I, that are in my life, you know, people oh. I used to work with, <laughs> pe people in the cause, you know, there, yeah. there is, there are political organizations that were, uh, or think tanks or media pundits or whatever that were very much in line with certain things that would have never, ever, 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 ever tolerated the behavior and actions and statements of we've seen from Donald J. Trump. And I, I don't want to go down a Trump train, but that's what we're talking about here is what McCarthy said about Trump. And, and, and our friend Jonah Goldberg predicted this seven years ago. Um, there's some things that people thought Trump would do negatively in his presidency that I freely admit he didn't do. Like some of the policy stuff was better than one would have expected. I totally agree. Some of the policy stuff I think was terrible. His overall competence and ability to lead was just atrocious. But there were certain policy things I totally admit were better. But one prediction was that he would corrupt everybody and he did every single person that touches them gets corrupted period so now the race in uh for that seat uh, which sort of roughly centers around it is a gigantic sprawling red district that goes all over the place uh, through most of kern county that's where um where good old kevin mccarthy is from in bakersfield and the folks who are now scrambling to uh, take advantage of mccarthy's resignation include uh devin nunez now I'm, I'm looking down a list here created by the group by uh, joe kieta of cal matters he's got devin nunez and nunez of course has um 11 million dollars in the bank still in campaign funds which makes gives him a really good start if this is something he decides to do but in talking to a few people out in the neighborhood in kern county i find that Devin Nunes has really become more interested in off-campus sorts of activities. You know, he is the head of Trump's Truth Social. He has some, I guess, passion for becoming a cabinet member and working directly with Trump if he and is betting that Trump will win and therefore is unlikely to run. Vince Fong, who's a Republican assembly member who represents Bakersfield, says he's definitely going to run. He's uh he's one of us. Um he has been in the forefront of, I think, all the right kinds of issues up in the assembly. Vince Fong has. There's also Shannon Grove, a Republican state senator uh, from roughly that same area. Shannon Grove, terrific conservative bona fides. She's awesome. Uh, she has, along with Vince Fong, I think there's just not a whole lot of name recognition sometimes. But Vince Fong, I would give the edge to there. And then there's David Valadeo, who is... Um, 
everybody's favorite Republican to the extent that he's a Republican who can also get elected in a really Democratic district or one that ought to be held by a Democrat up in the Central Valley. So um, those are the three kind of top players. Devin Nunes, most people are suspecting, won't run. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to follow that, David. I do want to get to a couple of other things because Joe Biden came out to Vegas this past week and uh, everybody in California who's on the left and uh, Gavin Newsom fan is celebrating Biden's announcement that he's going to give six billion dollars to California to two high speed rail projects. Um <laughs> Six billion dollars for the high speed rail. David, I, I'm just going to say we can we can do this fairly quickly or we can do it exhaustively. Your your call. We've only got a few minutes left here. But my sense is that high speed rail is the emperor's new clothes. There is I, I think there are very few people who understand who do not understand what a failed project high speed rail is in California. It is. It was supposed to cost about ten billion at one point, then thirty-three billion. It was supposed to be mostly funded by a state bond initiative that was passed, I think, in two thousand six. I want to say maybe two thousand eight. Um, eight. Thank you. Fifty and, billion. Yeah. So this thing just keeps ticking up, up, up. Now they have downsized the trajectory of this thing to just a small portion of the Central Valley. And it'll still cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 billion. So uh, Joe Biden comes out and says, high-speed rail is the future. You know, Joe Biden loves his train tracks and his choo-choos. So he gave $3 billion to California for a more than $100 billion project. You always love this when the government steps in and says, this is a great idea. It's going to be privately funded or whatever. And we're going to give you $3 billion for it. Um it's an amount of money that the government could just miss in the couches, you know, could fall out of out of Joe Biden's pockets and nobody in the White House would ever notice it unless it was cocaine. And um, oh, I was so, going to say, don't miss up an opportunity for like a good like it would fall out of Hunter Biden's hookers pockets. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Got to get that in there. Wish I'd said that. Was that yeah. too red meat? I'm sorry. Um, so. What what's fascinating to me about this is you know just the the claims coming out of, do out hooker, of government. Do hookers have pockets? Um, n- no, because they're not wearing. Well, yes, they are wearing clothes. I guess I don't. I don't really know. I've never had occasion to find out. But now that you've sent me on this assignment, field research on the subject. If only if you uh, insist. So you've yeah. got Brian. <laughs> Brian no, Kelly. Go, go I, I have a question, real quick. Um, yeah. Where? Okay, so. What, what you finish and then I have something to say. Sure. I'm going to wait. Um, the head of this, uh, the California High Speed Rail Authority, that's a guy named Brian Kelly, who's CEO, says the federal government is back on building high speed rail in America. This award is just a great leap forward. I thought it was interesting that he chose a Maoist phrase for this, the great leap forward. But there it is. Uh, Gavin Newsom said, California, got to do it with a horse voice. California is delivering on the first 220 mile per hour electric high speed rail project in the nation. This show of support from the Biden-Harris administration is a vote of confidence in today's vision and comes at a critical turning point, providing the project new momentum. It's $3 billion, Gavin. You and I both know that if we're 10 times that amount, it wouldn't make a difference and you'd lose it anyway to fraudsters. Jerry Brown says, God, Jerry Brown just will not go away. This is a voice from my high school, Jerry Brown's. This is not just an investment in high-speed rail. It's an investment in jobs, the climate, and our future. The project is proof that America can still do and build big things. Good. Lord, David, these things are like, you know, coming across the ruins of an Acropolis somewhere on the Aegean 
it is i guess there's only one acropolis uh some ancient building the this this project is so hamstrung so mismanaged so underfunded and over budget and over deadlines that it is inconceivable to me that anybody would lie this baldly uh mayor pete said thursday the california project faces the kind of challenges that come with being the very first at anything so that's its only real failing david it's just it's so extraordinarily innovative nobody's ever done this so of course it's going to get some really harsh scrutiny um i would just add finally david that high-speed rails um reduction in auto travel has been completely debunked i'll just put this all in the show notes um it, it will not reduce car travel in california barring a complete ab abandonment of vehicles cars i mean uh its finance is now the, the estimates are now that it's going to cost 128 billion we are about 100 billion short of that kind of financing nobody has figured this out there is no financing plan um our cpc zone at the time mark joffe broke down the state's claims on climate change and pointed out that in fact every estimate including the legislative analyst's office and the auditor have said it will not reduce carbon emissions that its construction alone will take 71 years to um before there's a kind of a balance a trade-off in carbon emissions that's into the next century almost so this is a project that is broken in myriad ways and yet the government's response is let's just go ahead and spend more on it because it's so brilliant um i would like to point out for people what the purpose is of the feds giving three billion towards something that would cost 128 billion and even this little stint that i think would basically go from like Culver Drive to Jamboree by train, okay? Um, For those of you who don't know, that's a local reference to about a four-block difference. Yes. The um, reason is not because they think it will move the needle towards getting it done. The reason is not because they're trying to build high-speed rail. Nobody believes this will get accomplished at that dollar level. Now, it's very possible Newsom wants to get some token small period done, like Trump's, you know, 50 feet of the wall at the border for a photo op for when he becomes president Newsom. But I don't even think that's what's going on. I think this is the most regular corruption and grift that happens in government. Who gets $3 billion out of something that needs over $100 billion? Where has all the money gone so far that's come? I want people to think about this. Consultants, the biggest criminals on the planet that are taking the money and don't do a thing. Nothing is built. Nothing comes of it. And yet there is cost after cost after cost for their studies and their analysis, their reports. And, and you can keep the gravy train going by continuing to release small amounts of funds that are large enough to pay the grifters and not large enough to build anything. That's who is fighting for high-speed rail, are the dirty, filthy, disgusting consultants that get paid. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the summary. Hey, um, you know, we well, could go Well, am I on. wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. This is, in fact, where most of the money has gone. Now, they'll claim that, well, we've actually built a few segments here and there. We've acquired some land here and there. 
Um, but you're right. I think by far the largest portion of this is to administrative fees to just administer a project that has very little funding and to keep that staff alive, including the consulting class. So, David, we have loads of stories to get to, but I'm just going to maybe end us here on one. That is uh, Kamala Harris sent out a holiday card uh, right around Thanksgiving. And here's from National Review. Now, this is uh, almost two weeks old at this point, but I do think it's still worth just just. Just saying. The headline is, for me, but not for thee, Kamala Harris's gas stove fits a pattern. The story begins, and it's from Kayla Barch at National Review. Over the Thanksgiving holiday, Kamala Harris posted a photo of her and her husband, Doug Emhoff, standing in what's ostensibly their kitchen with the caption, quote, from our family to yours, happy Thanksgiving. In the background is a casserole dish of stuffing, a tea kettle, and a gas stove. Mm. Uh, Many conservative outlets swiftly pounced on the comedic hypocrisy of a vice president beaming in front of the appliance, given that she serves as the face of the party that has fought to ban gas stoves use and production. Um, I could go on, but you get the point, David. Um, Hey, uh, some breaking news has come in while we are recording yet again. Kevin McCarthy's staying in uh, as he's going to be the speaker. Um, Shohei Atani is deferring $680 million of the 700 million he'll get paid till 2034 and the 10 years thereafter. Now, many will say, oh, wow, what a genius. He's going to work for basically nothing for the next 10 years and then get all this filthy rich money after the fact and and then he'll be living somewhere else and not have to pay California taxes. That's not true. It will still be taxed uh, about constructive receipt as to when it was earned. Uh, This is not going into a deferred comp plan uh, like a 401k or ERISA that would allow them to do it. Uh, The limits for such plans are, you know, hundreds of thousands, not hundreds of millions. But it does allow the Dodgers to not have to record his pay uh, for their luxury tax purposes. Oh, the so they can they can go they out can and still go and sign buy other players, players as if they're paying someone twenty million. Not this is smart. Million. This is very smart, David. I think if I'm hesitant, I'm hesitant to project onto Otani, uh, thinking that may not be his, but. It really does allow the the Dodgers the flexibility. They won't have to drain their entire bank account in order to pay him and then surround him with lousy players. This allows them to build a team around him then, I'm guessing. I haven't thought about this much, but they could they can continue to pay uh, Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts and others to stay on the team and help build, you know, real perhaps a dynasty if Otani can actually play. Yeah, I think um, I think it is probably going to be a structure for more deals. I kind of don't want people to misconstrue what I'm about to say, but you you could do deals like this a lot more if the cash flow of the players allowed for it. But a lot of the players, it doesn't. You know what I'm saying? Like they need the money, so they can't yeah. do this. So, well, he's still making two million a year, which is not not nothing. I mean, it's not what he could well, be making. Of course, not, it but. is nothing. I mean, compared to what. The lifestyle of someone who's making seventy million a year, your 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 carry is going to be more than two million. Uh, I mean, just realistically. Sure. Uh, anything else you I want to add, know David? His, I want to know if his agent is deferring the money. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's a big deal. <laughs> that is an interesting question because that guy's making two million a year, I think, on his his piece of the action. Oh, probably yeah, at least. Yeah, it's interesting. All right. Well, we've broken news now twice in a row. I mean, this is 
This is basically where you come for the hot takes. So, <laughs> and we're breaking news that deserves to be broken. Hey, that's all we have today. So, thanks for spending your time with David and with me. You can always find Radio Free California on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe, and that helps others find and join this band of brothers and sisters you can email us with your comments and story suggestions as so many of you did thank you dr tony lima you'll find our email addresses and other fun details in the show notes also follow us on twitter at the radio free ca on behalf of my friend and co-host david bonson we give thanks as ever to session producers lucas klaus brian tong and glenn hall and to national reviews producer sarah Schutte. thanks also to metalachi the la-based mariachi and metal band for our music la revolucion continua in la semana próxima Oh, 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 oh,